0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Top's Talk, episode 30. We thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. This episode is a special one for a few reasons, but the first of which is one having to do with time. It was almost exactly a year ago that we debuted the first episode of this podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you who took any time at all to listen to an episode. We're looking at another great year ahead and one that will include an exciting partnership as well, but more on that in a future episode. This episode will feature one of the treasures of American sports, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Recently, outfielder Ken Griffey Jr. and catcher Mike Piazza took to the stage and accepted their entrance into the hallowed hall, and it brought chills and tears of joy to the thousands in attendance and the millions watching. Not long before they got to Cooperstown, I stopped by to talk with three influential members of the staff, Bruce Markison, the manager of digital outreach and learning, John O'Dell, the curator of history and research at the Hall of Fame, and Jeff Idelson, the president of the Hall of Fame. I started my day with Bruce Markison, who not only manages digital outreach, he also pens a column called Card Corner on the Hall of Fame's website, where he highlights a particular baseball card and its backstory.
1: Well, it was um, not totally my idea, was uh, another guy here at the Hall of Fame, Donnie Lowe, who is one of the people in charge of our website and um, our social media. And he, had, he knew about my interest in, in baseball cards, writing about cards, and last year you know, he said, uh, so would you like to you know, start doing a weekly card feature? It was good that he asked me in the summer because we don't have too many school groups coming through and I don't have many video conferences in the summer so I have a little more time. So I started doing um, the card corner feature and um, been doing one a week uh, ever since. So that's how it came about. Uh, I've always been uh, a collector. I started collecting when I was seven in 1972. That was my first set and uh, I've sort of been hooked ever since. Uh, So I've always been interested in cards for about as long as I could remember. It's always enhanced my enjoyment of the game. In terms of the card corner, I particularly like writing about cards from uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, the vintage cards, Uh, although occasionally we'll do more recent cards too.
2: I'm always interested in defining out how specifically how someone gets into card collecting because everybody has kind of like their own flavor of a
1: story. Uh, So tell me your flavor. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I was all of seven, so uh, I may not be 100% accurate here, but um, I was a baseball fan already, obviously, and uh, I just remember Saturday uh, afternoons, I would um, make my way into town. I probably shouldn't have been doing that at the age of seven, walking into town by myself, but I lived in a small town, Bronxville, New York, and uh, I... um, Remember buying my first pack of cards at a place called Gallard's Stationery Store, and uh, it just it got me hooked. Uh, I l I'd liked the idea of being able to get a card for players that I followed, watched on TV, uh, read about in the newspaper, and it just seemed kind of cool that you could you know have a card for every one of your favorite players on the Yankees or whatever your team might have been. My favorite player at the time was Roberto Clemente, so trying to get his card, that was a big goal, and I was able to achieve that uh, that year. So I I remember the very first card that I got, and I say it's the first card because it was the top card of that first pack, and it was Dave Cash, uh, starting second baseman for the Pirates. They were the defending world champions that spring. Little did I know at the time that Dave Cash was from Utica, New York, that would be my first job out of college. I took a job at WIBX Radio in Utica working as a sports talk show host. So kind of an interesting coincidence. I later found out that Dave Cash went to Cooperstown as a youngster, played in a Hall of Fame game for the Pirates when he was a very young player and uh, you know was from the general upstate New York area. Obviously, Utica is only 40 minutes from Cooperstown. And Cooper Sound's where I got my second job, working at the Baseball Hall of Fame. So it's kind of funny how the Dave Ca- Cash card was um, foreshadowing all these things that would happen to me down the line. Besides how you first got into it, you said that Clemente was your guy. Yeah. So how did you how did you collect Roberto? How did I collect him? Um, you know, I just basically that those first couple of years, I just bought cards at the stationery stores and drugstores in Bronxville. Um, A little bit later on, my father actually started buying me complete sets of tops every year. So that was uh, another way that we would uh, collect um, for players, favorite players like Clemente. The reason Clemente was my favorite player is because of my heritage. My mother was Puerto Rican. She was born in Santurce, which coincidentally was the first professional team That Clemente played for in winter league baseball I I didn't know that at the time but I would find out about that years later so me being part Puerto Rican um, Clemente became my favorite player and I was very young when he died he of course died uh, at the end of 1972 at the end of my first year collecting cards I was all of seven years old at the time um, so I you know I don't have a lot of firsthand memories of him but what I do remember is that even with his death, I just became more motivated to learn about him, read about him, uh, read books, watch documentaries. Eventually, I would come to write a book about Clemente. So he's always been a source of great interest uh, to me, even though I have only a few scant memories of watching him play. Uh, and usually that was on television, W O R T V, tv whenever the Mets played the Pirates. Clemente did have that mythical feel about him
2: because he was taken so soon from all of us and it was like, the, it was like an enzyme. His, his death, it, 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 it sparked so much discussion on him and so many features about him and so much interest on him. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all that, that that enhanced your interest so much. Uh, was there another player that you uh,
1: were fond of that you tried to collect as well? Another guy was his t- teammate, uh, Willie Stargell. He was one of my favorite players. I really liked those pirate teams, particularly in the early 70s. Uh, they were aggressive, free-swinging, scored tons of runs, um, and they were you know, excellent teams. They were perennial contenders, and they won World Series both at the beginning and at the end of the decade. In one of the card corners that I did recently, it was on Willie Stargell's 1974 Tops card. And uh, I wrote extensively about how I could not obtain it. Every time I bought a pack that year at Gillard's or Pickwick Stationery in Bronxville, I didn't get the Stargell. So it motivated me to do something stupid. I um, went to my uh, neighbor's house, which was empty one summer day, and I stole the card from uh, the older brother of one of my best friends in um he realized uh, within a few hours that the card was missing and put two and two together. Of course, I was the one who stole it. I was not a particularly effective robber. So uh, I was quite embarrassed by that and learned at a very young age. Uh, Again, I was all of nine at the time, so I hope the statute of limitations has run out on that. But um, I learned at at a young age that what I had done was wrong. I, I felt embarrassed and ashamed about it. And and eventually I did acquire the Stargell legitimately. So there was a happy ending to that. Um, but the stolen car did make it back to its, uh, its rightful owner and in, in pretty good condition. I didn't do much damage to it while I had it.
2: You know, I have to congratulate you, Bruce, this is the first time I've talked with anyone and anyone's discussed a theft <laughs> regarding uh, a tops card, yeah. so, I mean, that uh, if that doesn't help the brand, I, I don't know what will.
1: Nothing recent, by the way, this was 1974, so 32 years ago.
2: Those, those tops cards that you uh, document in Card Corner, I mean, what, what are, are some very fascinating things that you've learned uh, when you have kind of gone back and researched uh, these topics?
1: Well, I think as a fan at the time, I, I just assumed that they you know got the photos you know a week before and then slapped them onto a card, not realizing that in almost every case the photographs were taken the previous year, often in spring training. In some cases, the photographs might have even been two or three years old, depending on what Topps had in its library. Um, the airbrushing of the cards was something that uh, we found a lot of fun. Um, it always looked to me like you know they took kind of a magic marker uh, to the cards, but I later learned that this was actually an artistic process called airbrushing and it was some sometimes necessary because of all the movement that would happen during the off season and it really intensified with the 1977 top set, because that was the first year after free agency. So a ton of players were moving from one team to another, not just through trades, but through free agent signings. So there's a lot of airbrush cards in the 77 top set, which I think makes it very interesting. Uh, Another great thing about the cards, um, when I started collecting 1972, they had introduced action cards the previous year, actually 1971. I'd always assumed action cards had been around since Tops began in the early 50s. And then I realized when I started looking back at cards from the 1960s, all the shots were posed, portraits, profiles. There weren't action shots. So action shots um, were really a new thing back then. And when we got a baseball card of a player and it was an action shot, we were excited. It was a novelty. It was something unusual. Now most players are featured in action shots, and I think sometimes people take it for granted. I'm learning, uh, as, still as we go along, I'm learning more and more about, you know, what goes into the cards. And um, we're fortunate here at the Hall of Fame. We have a great collection of photographs from a guy named Doug McWilliams, who used to photograph for Tops. And um, we have a lot of the photos, negatives from his collection. And you see the negatives of photographs that weren't used on the cards. Again, as a young kid, you think, oh, they just took one shot and that's it. No, the the guy who went out, uh, whether it was Doug McWilliams in the Bay Area or whomever, you know, probably took dozens and dozens of shots. And then ultimately only one would get selected by top. So it's, it's a fascinating field. I'm always learning more uh, as I write each column each week,
0: Tops' Allen and Ginter Baseball is a cherished set that comes out each year, and this year is no different. Look for Allen & Ginter Baseball in your local hobby or retail shop now and make sure to catch episodes from Topps Talk throughout this month where we'll play interviews with special guests who stop by the office to sign their Allen & Ginter autograph cards. Also, check out the Tops.com website for the exclusive web-only version of the product, Allen & Ginter X. When many visitors first arrive at Cooperstown, they go straight to the plaques in the Hall of Fame gallery to scan the bronzed faces on the larger-than-life walls. But there are many other exhibit halls to discover, and who better to show me the way than John O'Dell, the curator of history and research at the Hall of Fame. John took me through the newest exhibit at the Hall, and he led us off by explaining the reason for calling it Whole New Ball Game."
3: We chose that name for the very reason it begins in 1970 continues to the present and it's an era when you really see baseball changing from what it had been to what it is today Uh, there are two changes that are are really important to note one of them is there's a lot more video that uh, is taking place at that time the other is that there's a lot of material culture things that uh, connect people to the game that really explodes during this time one of those things is baseball cards
2: yeah, and of course, I mean, a
3: perfect segue. Uh, baseball
2: cards—you guys utilized them really throughout each era, which really says something about kind of the, the growth of baseball cards. But let's go kind of towards the beginning in the '70s when this kicks off. That really was probably one of the high points of baseball cards in in, in culture, and you guys used it very well to show
3: uh, all different type of details within that decade. Yeah, so in the 1970s, a couple of stories that we wanted to call out, which were things that that baseball cards could do in a way that we could have done with words, but it's more fun to do it with, uh, with something that many of our visitors are going to have had in their own, maybe they still have them in their collection, maybe mom threw them out, but they used to have Oh, look, here's two cards that look almost identical. They're San Diego Padres cards. Only one of them says Washington National League, and the other says San Diego Padres. Well, that was uh, in the early 70s when San Diego was considering moving to Washington after Washington had left for Texas. Now they don't have a team. What's going to happen? Well, maybe San Diego's going to go. And until spring training that year, that was what the thought was. Well, Here's an opportunity to use the the early run and the later run to tell that story in a graphic way, in a visual way, so that we don't have to use words to tell it. You can see it for yourself. Another story that you can really see for yourself is uh, the 1971 Pittsburgh Pirates who fielded the first all-black lineup. And I can say that, I can tell you that as a curator, and yet it's abstract if you can't see them so we could have taken eight by ten photographs of each of the ball players but how much more enjoyable to pull out the 1971 and 1972 pittsburgh pirates cards and pull up those nine ball players and show you how these players 25 years after jackie robinson would have been unable to play many of them at the time that they were born and and yet here they they are they become the first uh, all black uh, lineup uh, but again you can either tell somebody or you can show somebody. And museums are in the business of showing and connecting. And so many opportunities throughout our this 45-year period that we're talking about, 1970 to the present in a um, uh, whole new ball game, is an opportunity for us to show. And baseball cards just do that over and over again, whether are talking about facial hair from the mustache guys of the uh, of the Oakland A's, Oscar Gamble's great afro uh, that is just monumental and the opportunity to show that. Um, and we pick a variety of them so that we can show also in a more subtle way because we're not calling that out in this particular exhibit uh, this is like the, the great wonderful designs that have taken place. And one of the great debates that uh, baseball card fans have is what is the best year what are the best years you just like you're talking about breadth you can talk about size you can talk about design you can talk about color you can talk about original images and because we're using them throughout the entire exhibit you people who love baseball cards will be able to pick up on that other fans won't see that but we wanted baseball card fans because we have over a hundred thousand cards here we wanted to be able to pick and choose from our collection to be able to show a little bit different story. Some of our stories are very open and big. Some of them are very small and, and for a very select group. And there is an a, a interesting and small story for a select group that's buried in the baseball cards that you see throughout this exhibit.
2: Baseball cards, as you're noting, have such a personal effect on people. I want to know the personal effect on you, sir. How did they affect
3: your life? Well. Uh, I remember um, my first my first baseball card at least the first baseball card that i remember uh was a cookie rojas card when he was back with the philadelphia phillies and i thought that it was the funniest thing in the world that there was a man named cookie uh and so this like all of a sudden here was and to see these great uh great photographs and so what did I do? I did the same thing that so many people did with my baseball cards. I played with them, I traded them, I clipped them to the to the spokes of my bicycle. They were they were a toy. They weren't an investment. They weren't to be set, you know, set aside and and preserved for some day in the future. They were for the here and now. And so they got used up, and I'm not gonna blame my mom. I'm sure I tossed them at the end of the year when they were no good any longer. I needed to have some new ones for next year. Um, but uh, but I remember them being uh, one of my first entrees into Major League Baseball. You know, I grew up in a town down in Tidewater, Virginia, where we had minor league baseball, and I went with my family, my grandfather and father, to go see minor league baseball games. But aside from uh, the Saturday game of the week, only one game on tv back in those olden days uh you know the way that you saw and that was on black and white on our tvs the way that you saw baseball in color was on those tops baseball cards that's how you knew what the uniforms really looked like uh, when they were all simply shades of gray and white on tv cookie rojas i love that
2: that is that's incredible because that like so many people could say, oh well, you know, I was seeing a Mickey Mantle card, or I was seeing a Roberto Clemente. Card. No, Cookie Rojas, and I, I love that. That is the perfect example of how how specific people's memories with baseball cards are, and I think that is one of the things that this exhibit is trying to really bring out is those specific memories with people. I mean, you have in there. A Louisiana Lightning hot sauce bottle. You have an iPad in there with a specific date and with MLB.com, the website, on it. You guys have the movie poster of the Bash Brothers with Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco looking like the Blues Brothers only with baseball bats. I mean, you guys really tapped into culture throughout the the many recent decades. And did you think that that was something that the museum was kind of lacking? Is that
3: why that's here now? We really wanted to go in a much more interdisciplinary way uh, uh, and a multimedia way. Not just, we have a lot of video up there too as well that you get a chance to select from over a hundred great moments that you can see uh, on screens that are uh, roughly about four feet by five feet. But uh, we wanted to. We have a tremendous collection here that was totally being underutilized. It was back in uh, storage areas and research areas, and we wanted to bring all of this material up to the to the front so that our visitors could experience the entire depth and breadth of our collection. And in so doing, we really made an exhibit that's a lot more vibrant. And yes, that was a conscious exhibit, a conscious decision for that exhibit.
2: Yeah, you talked about the video and the video boards that are there. Also, there are some really great interactives that are there. And one of the things that we did there was the Pete Rose interactive, and I, I have to bring that up just because that was so awesome to to really bring in the the social voice. Uh, and and I really do mean that social voice because it's about Twitter and the uh, and the opinions from. Really, not—I don't want to say—random handles, but just a a selection of diverse Twitter handles coming from people you know, like Ric Flair, or from Joe Schmo out in Iowa. But it's uh, about—it was about whether. Pete Rose's legacy, w- what that kind of should be, and how he should be honored, if he should be honored. Uh, how, how did that come about, and was that a difficult thing to put together?
3: It, it was a difficult thing, because uh, the Pete Rose story is a hard one to look at fairly and openly and honestly, and there's been so much heartache that really uh, surrounds Pete Rose. Nobody will dispute the fact that he's one of the greatest baseball players ever to play the game. And the the terrible tragedy, it's almost Greek tragedy, uh, is that it was his pride, his hubris, his feeling that baseball wasn't exciting enough already. I've got to bet on it to make it more exciting uh, while I was a player and a manager. We didn't know that it was a player until just recently, but while I was a manager. And uh, and as a result, um, first he lied about it for for many many years, and then finally came clean about it. Uh, but to tell this story in a way that uh, that helps people understand that there are multiple sides to this story, and to let people express their opinions about it, people have been talking about Pete Rose uh, since before this whole controversy. I mean, they talked about Pete Rose when he was simply, you know, the hardest charging, hard nosed guy uh, to ever play baseball, and it was clear to a lot of people that he was not the greatest uh, talent on the field, but that he earned what he got. And that was why so many people would say, you know, he's who you should model yourself after because he's got a passion for the game and he works really hard at it. Um, And yet on the other side of things is this terrible thing that he did that if other baseball players began doing would totally undermine the sport and turn it into an exhibition, like wrestling is and so we used nature boy rick flair as one of the twitter handles because uh, his is a sport that is not a sport and it's not a sport because it's all choreographed everybody knows what's going to be happening and if people didn't know that uh, you know that the players were on the up and up it would undermine the game And yet that's not the biggest challenge to this game today. The bigger challenge is PEDs. And so we weave that in as well because many, many people will say, well, Pete Rose might have done this, but he didn't do that. And so we wanna bring all of these voices in. They are the discussion that real baseball fans are having out in the real world. The Baseball Hall of Fame is always working to be more relevant more part of the baseball conversation that real fans are having and what better way to do it than to reach into and talk about uh, management and labor and steroids and pete rose and the future of baseball and the designated hitter who knew a couple of years ago that the national league would even be kicking around the idea of reinstituting the designated hitter but that's one of the stories that we talk about and then as a curator one of the privileges that i have is to go into our twitter feed and Pull out these these tweets and put them into the exhibit and so people who tweet about these things we're bringing them in and just like for a day or a week or a month or a year their tweets will be within the context of the uh, of the exhibit when you kind of look back
2: on this exhibit at from we're talking about a long time down the road now what do you want people
3: to say that they got out of this exhibit I want people to come to this exhibit and when they come into it today and then when they go home and then when they recall it to their friends and family uh, after they visited here i want them to say i saw things that i had forgotten but it made me remember them i saw things that i personally had or that friends of mine had and i saw an exhibit that recognized that i have a part in baseball as a fan
0: Did you ever wish you could have your entire card collection in your pocket? Well, now you can. The Tops Company presents seven different theme trading card apps for your phone or tablet, and you can find them in the Google Play or App Store right now. If you're a baseball fan, check out Tops Bunt. Or if you prefer football, download Tops Huddle. Sports not your only interest? Check out Star Wars Card Trader, The Walking Dead Card Trader, and Tops WWE Slam. Having a mobile card collection is only a tap away. Before I said farewell to Cooperstown, I had the privilege to sit down with the president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson. We discussed his vision for the Hall, what he believes the main role of the Hall of Fame is, and his thoughts on this year's inductees. But of course, I started our conversation off by asking him about his own history with baseball cards.
4: My, Well, I was the oldest in my family, so I didn't have anybody to show me the way. My dad didn't collect cards, but um, baseball cards were a seminal part of my becoming involved with the game. I'm of that age where um I learned a game through collecting I learned the players so it was it was a big part of my early childhood
2: and who did you like to collect I mean that usually kind of shows a little bit about someone's personality like who 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 was your guy
4: uh you know I grew up in Boston so I collected I collected Red Sox and it's funny because I was sorting through my cards actually recently which I hadn't done in years and um I'm realizing that I had, like, you know, 11 Jim Rices and, you know, nine Carly Ostremsky's. And then I had, I have about four Vern Rule cards from from 1976. And in every one of them, I have painted, I I had poked the eyes out. And I don't know Vern Rule. I had poked the eyes out and, like, drawn, like, a little triangular beard and, and horns because he broke Jim Rice's wrist in September of 75, prohibiting from uh, Jim participating in a World Series. So, Vern Rule is probably one of the nicest human beings. Perhaps he is, but I, he was a villain in my life because
2: of that. And you always have evidence of that villainy. That That's, that's hilarious. Uh, how did your collecting kind of evolve when you were, when you first started to then when you kind of were at your peak of, of collecting cards?
4: Um, I don't know that it I really evol- it evolved much. I mean, I guess early on I just collected uh, with what allowance I had, and then it became, you know, the I became more preoccup- preoccupied with collecting as many Red Sox players versus trying to complete a set. And, you know, I'm uh, of the year, I, I collected mid-70s, uh, early mid-70s to late-70s, and then I lost interest when I was about 14 uh, in terms of heavy collecting. Um, but it was all built around collecting my favorite players, and, and um, I was in, I was uh, uh, it was important to me to win as many cards as I could. Uh, you know, flipping was big, so I you know I didn't keep them in mint condition like they are today, and uh, it was more about it was more about these are my people. These are the these
2: are the people I want to hang with. And when you grew your interest in baseball, did you say to yourself, "I want to work"? for the game in the game
4: yeah you know I, I thought I wanted to be an announcer I thought that's the you know I knew I knew I wasn't good enough to play so I thought I'd be announced an announcer um, didn't know if that would ever come to fruition uh, I was fortunate enough to be a vendor at Fenway Park spent six years doing that during my youth so I got to be around the ballpark and graduating from college I went to um, Connecticut, Connecticut College which is a small liberal arts school in New London, Connecticut, and my career advisor said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I don't know. Well, you're the career advisor. She said, what do you like? I said, baseball. She said, try and work in baseball. And I was fortunate enough to get a, a gig with the Red Sox five days after I graduated, went to the Yankees after that, and 30 years later, I'm still in baseball.
0: I didn't know that
2: was allowed, going from the Red Sox then to the Yankees. Was that common? Not so much.
4: I mean, it'd probably be like working for Trump and for Hillary or something, you know, both sides of the aisle. But no, and and in fact, I I grew up absolutely despising the Yankees, but uh, uh, they were the team that offered me a full-time job. I grew to love the Yankees and realized pretty quickly that my um, appreciation was for the game, not any one player or any one team.
2: So how did you become the president of the Hall of Fame? What was that journey like for you once you got uh, into baseball, like you said, from the Red Sox, and then that full-time Yankee job?
4: Well, I'd like to be able to tell you I traded all my cards in for the position, but it didn't quite work that way. Um, uh, I I came out of... uh, uh, college and, and and gravitated into public relations and marketing, and I worked on the PR side. Um, I was in media relations in Boston in '86 and '88 when they went to the playoffs. We almost won it all in '86, which was pretty. Pretty amazing uh, and lost to uh, a team you're familiar with, the Mets, of course. And uh, <laughs> with the Yankees, I stayed in media relations and PR and loved what I was doing, but it, I really wanted to change a pace uh, after five years there. So I came to Cooperstown in the same role, uh, fell in love with this, this village, the museum, uh, just how, how wonderful we connect with fans and uh, the game's history. And just uh, th- through a matter of being here for a long time, I ascended to the position I hold today.
2: What has been your favorite part of this museum that you've seen evolve and really become what you wished it did?
4: I'd, I'd say it, collectively, it's the way we're evolving. So the exhibits today are uh, much more compelling. They're more—they're—they're much—they're not so two-dimensional. Uh, there's the ability to interact. Uh, our our whole new ball game exhibit is a is a wonderful example of two-way communication where you can read and interpret. Uh, form your own value judgments about topics, uh, whether they be uh, the state of the game today, the designated hitter, Pete Rose, uh, labor, PEDs, and then be able to share your opinion. And you know, a museums' jobs are to start a conversation, not to tell people how to think, but to start a conversation and get them thinking. And a measuring stick is that that ability for uh, how you uh, formulate your thoughts. Then being shared back with us through social media, it's a great measuring stick and shows that the fans love sharing how they feel.
2: Yeah, when John took me through that exhibit, I couldn't help but really feel like I was getting transported through each decade. And really, a lot of that was due to the little trinkets that were in there and the the different uh, the different items, including the top baseball cards, which I was very proud to see. Uh, but but one of the things that I did think was very not only fascinating, but almost bold, was that uh, interactive uh, that had to do, as you alluded to, with Pete Rose. I mean, how, was that difficult to put that in there?
4: No, um, really not at all. I mean, a, a, again, as a history museum, our job is to present the game as it, unfe- as it unfolds on the field, and we we don't develop the rules. We're not in charge of the records. Our job is to, pre- is to preserve and present history, and Pete Rose is a seminal topic um, people have an opinion about him uh, he was one of my favorite players growing up uh, I liked the way he hustled treated the game with respect that way but he also committed baseball's cardinal sin and has made no bones about saying that he did and the, you know, the age-old argument is you know, should he be in the Hall of Fame or not and hearing how fans feel about that um, is, is good for us to hear from a feedback standpoint but also a chance for them to be able to share their opinions
2: When you look to the future, how do you want to see this museum evolve?
4: You know, we have the greatest baseball collection there is. Nobody has a better one than we do, and it's incumbent upon us to be able to share it. So the evolution of this place will continue to be how well we can share our collections, whether they be digitally or brick-and-mortar, and And we are... uh, in the process of of putting together a very, very comprehensive digitization program which will allow our, uh, you know, 300,000 photographs, two million plus library documents, uh, and three-dimensionally our artifacts to be able to be shared with baseball fans around the world who are just fans and want to build their own virtual collections, uh, with school groups who need primary source documents to talk about, uh, you know, why Roberto Clemente helped the Latino experience or why Jackie Robinson helped this country evolve. Um, and it's also the brick and mortar experiences, like I say. We're, in, we're starting a tour this summer, a national tour called We Are Baseball that's going to go to ballparks around the country. So as long as we can take Cooperstown and, and make it available to those that can't come here, that's how this museum will continue to
2: evolve. Let's talk about this year's uh, inductees. Ken Griffey, Jr., I describe him as the the golden child of, of the 90s. I mean, he was truly baseball's golden child who really influenced so many people. I mean, what is, what is your thought, what is your kind of uh, personal history maybe with Ken Griffey Jr.?
4: Oh, I mean, when you think about uh, having to manage expectations, you think of a guy who was the first ever number one pick in the country to make the Hall of Fame. And, you know, you come out of college or you come out of high school, in Ken's case, you're the number one pick. Your dad's been a successful major leaguer. That's a lot of pressure, and to be able to channel that pressure into a magnificent Hall of Fame career is really uncanny, and uh, I believe he and Roberto Alomar are the only two Hall of Famers who had dads that played in the majors. Uh, this was a guy who was a true five-tool player. He had one of the most beautiful swings in the game. He played the game seemingly effortlessly, but you know that he worked hard, and he's, he's a guy that had fun with the game. He loved the game. I think you could argue that he helped build the fan base substantially, and he's a very
2: deserving inductee. And finally, ending with one of my personal favorites, Mike Piazza, who I I can't tell you how happy I am to actually yeah. see Okay, I'm incredibly happy. <laughs> <laughs> I am very happy to see, finally see a met, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame in my lifetime. And it was it, it's truly something special and to, and to see him say physically say I'm a Met in the Hall of Fame it, it almost it was an emotional moment for me uh, and for and for so many people out there who uh, who like me really kind of felt that Tom Seaver was obviously the greatest player ever for the Mets was really the only guy that could ever be some someone deserving but to see Piazza here is truly something that is going to be incredible and it, about Piazza, Piazza wasn't obviously as successful as Griffey, not many people were, but he had a different flavor about him. And What, what, do you, what can you say about uh, Piazza's contribution to the game?
4: Well you, you take a look at, at, at Mike who had the, you know when you compare him to Ken Griffey Jr., you have Ken who was the first pick in the 87 draft and then you have Mike who was virtually the last pick in the 88 draft and his job was to prove the critics wrong where Griffey had to prove the critics right. And Mike overcame a lot of adversity in terms of he was a, a good player, but not a great player. He worked really, really hard. Work ethic. You get that. You know, you, if you want, if you want to gel, generalize, he had that South Philly work ethic, and uh, nobody worked harder than Mike to make him to make himself the player he was. And you talk about a guy with great opposite field power. He almost had a left. He almost had a, a swing that was built for a left hander. Uh, the way that he was. You know, able to able to take the low ball and drive it away. It was it was, it was like Griff. It was like mirror of Griffey if you think about it. When you, when you take that part of the swing, but this is a guy who gets overlooked for his defense, and he was a very durable, good defensive catcher. I mean, he he, he was he was very very good defensively. And on the other side of the baseball, there was nobody who embraced the bigger moment better than Mike. There was nobody who uh, silenced the critics better with the way he carried himself, and another deserving inductee into the Hall of Fame.
2: A lot of what he did was not just that incredible offensive consistency, but like you said, the defensive side. And I think that's important to highlight just because for a long time, really the only way that people saw defensive statistics was, are you going to throw the guy out or are you not going to throw the guy out? And obviously that has evolved as that kind of is the hidden uh, point of our talk here is evolved into now. Well, you know what? He was an incredible blocker of the plate and he did a lot of the little things. And whereas Griffey was very flashy, Piazza was a little bit more subtle in what he was good at.
4: He was. And, you know, in, in some cases, maybe that oh, you get overlooked because of that. And, and that's probably a case in point with Mike, because b- people focused on the home runs, being the all-time home run leader among catchers, but he could do so much more. And he was great at the plate. He was, he was durable, as I mentioned. He wasn't out of the lineup much. He had no problem blocking the plate. Uh, and uh, he really was an asset to both the Dodgers and the Mets, and... An incredible asset for the week he spent in Miami to the Marlins. So, uh, a very deserving place in Cooperstown for a guy who represents the Mets very well.
2: Because I've I've obviously never sat down with you before, and I and I don't know when the next time, if ever, I will. I'm I'm curious as to who you personally, if you can even say who you hope to see in the Hall of Fame in the next couple of years.
4: Well, you know. We don't vote. The staff at the Hall of Fame doesn't vote, and um, our job is to honor whom the writers elect. But when you look at who's coming on the Pike, there are some pretty amazing candidates out there. There are guys who finished strong last year who may get in this year. Guys like uh, Jeff Bagwell. And Tim Raines, who, who gained a lot of ground, and, and of course, uh, Trevor Hoffman with his 600 plus saves. He's joined by you know newcomers, including Vladimir Guerrero and Pud Rodriguez. You look down the line, you got Omar Vizquel coming, Jim Tomey, Chipper Jones, Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter. So I think that the outlook is very bright for Cooperstown and for the stars who have finished playing in the last five years to have a place
1: here in the Hall of Fame.
0: Thanks for listening to Top Stock, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at TopStock. If you have any questions or comments, or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstalk at tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Laraski, Leanne Minutoli, Susan LeJudai, Pat O'Sullivan, Bruce Markison, John O'Dell, Jeff Idelson, and John Shestikovsky. This has been Episode 30 of Top Stock.